Mad Wild West podcast. Kick your boots off and stay a while because you're about to hear the stories lost in time from the people that lived and made the Wild West mad. All right, you longtime listeners of the Mad Wild West, you know what time it is. It's time to read some headlines. These come to you from the weekly Arizona Miner, October 17th, 1868. The headline reads, More Indians Killed. Troop B, 8th U.S. Cavalry, Lieutenant Summerby Commanding, deserve well of the government and the citizens of Arizona for telling blows recently inflicted upon our savage enemies in the vicinity. On the morning of the 6th, the little troop, led by their gallant officer and under the guidance of Mr. Ed Peak, one of the best guides in this part of Arizona, left camp on the Agua Friero and made for the divide between the Verde and Agua Friero rivers. They crossed Ash Creek and struck an Indian trail over which the oxen and cows recently stolen from this place were driven. The command followed this trail as far east as the Verde and found the cattle had been driven across the river at a point near the mouth of the East Fork. As the weeks had elapsed since the cattle were stolen, it would, of course, have done no good for them to go further into that direction, so they turned north and made for Camp Lincoln. On the way up, they found several deserted rancheras, which had been built within the last six months. Arriving at Camp Lincoln, they drew some rations and started out again towards Black Mountain. On Sunday morning last, while scouting through the said mountain, they had good fortune to meet in a canyon five full-grown strapping male Indians, every one whom they killed. After killing the five near the mouth of the canyon, the little command dashed forward, but the cowards had snuck off and hid, leaving bows, arrows, baskets, etc. behind them. There must have been a large band of Indians in the canyon at the time, as in going into the mountain towards Granite Creek, they made two large trails. The command then scouted through the mountain and came out at Postle's Ranch, where they rested, while Lieutenant Summerby, Mr. Peck, and some of the men came up to Fort Whipple for rations. From Postle's Creek, they intended to strike towards the Upper Verde and back to camp, hoping to fall in with the Apache Yumas again. One of the five Indians fought bravely and came very near to putting arrows through Sergeant Wartman and Mr. Peck. Ed says the Indians fired all his arrows at him, and when they were all gone, bent his bow at them. Since September 8th, Lieutenant Summerby and his little command of about 25 men has succeeded in killing 14 Indians and capturing seven. Pretty good, we say. Here's a headline that reads, Smallpox. This lonesome, terrific disease is on the increase in San Francisco and has also found its way to Los Angeles. The star says several soldiers are sick with it at Camp Drum and that a Mexican citizen of the county recently died of it. Hope our neighbors of California will soon get rid of it and that it will not cross the Colorado River. But for the fear it might, we advise our territorial readers to get vaccinated. Mr. E.N. Allen, 
mail writer to San Pedro informs the Arizonan that on Friday the 25th, while a train of immigrants were encamped at that place, a party of 12 or 15 mounted Apaches came entering up as if to pay them a friendly visit, and when in almost close proximity, they charged upon the herd grazing close to the camp and succeeded in driving off 23 animals. This occurred in broad daylight and in the presence of some 50 persons, nearly all armed. But so sudden and unassuming were all the movements of the Indians that before the reality of their presence was fully contemplated by the immigrants, the herd was furiously underway, propelled by whoops and lances toward the home of the Apaches. Shots at long range were fired and pursuit was given, but in vain. The Indians bore their booty in triumph to the mountains. It is to be wondered at that the immigrants are reluctant about establishing their homes among us. No, indeed, it is not. Another quick news blurb says the Indians are on the warpath in Kansas. On the 17th, they attacked a camp of 50 soldiers on a fork of the Republican. The soldiers retreated to an island whither they were followed by the Indians. A desperate fight ensued in which Colonel Forsyth was badly wounded and Lieutenant Bircher was killed. Troops were sent to the relief of the beleaguered soldiers and were saved. Here's something that's important to the Mad Wild West. Beer and brewmasters. Check this one out here. Says Litting and Company. We call attention to the advertisement of Litting and Company, which appears in today's paper. Mr. Litting is the pioneer brewer of northern Arizona having erected the first brewery and brewed the first beer in this section. In the spring of 1867, he was burned out of house and home, and since that time has tried to revive his fortune at Wickenburg and other places. But failing to do so, he returned to his first love, Prescott, and started anew. His perseverance and indomitable energy commend him to our citizens as a gentleman in every way and worthy of a share of their patronage. I know what all of you are anxiously waiting for. You want to know who is the sponsor for this podcast episode. Well, let me read it to you here. Fellow citizens of Yabapai, your ears for a moment, not for the purpose of cutting them off, but to yell into them the fact that E.J. Cook's Adobe Store is now filled with your choice of groceries and provisions, fashionable clothing, nice ladies' goods, glassware, crockery, and everything that can possibly be required to meet your wants. And the beauty of the thing is, Mr. Cook never swears. He's a salesman, attends to the part of every business, that he is determined to sell goods cheaper than any other trader in Prescott. Call at the Adobe, see how neatly things are arranged by Mr. Reed, and examine his goods. And take our word for it, you cannot resist the temptation of buying something from him. He is such a nice, pleasing gentleman and so polite to the ladies. Go on down, get your goods at E.J. Cook's Adobe Store. And what would the ad section be without some good health care ads of the day? Here's one. Hostetter's Stomach Bitters. The following letters from well-known physicians and individuals show the estimation of which this celebrated preparation is held by those who have used them. And they've got a whole list of letters here. 
and testimonies from people. And I'll read you a couple of these here real quick. Here's a testimony from J.T. Gilner, M.D. He writes, Monsieur Hostetter and Smith, gentlemen, I sell more of your stomach bitters than any other medicine. Parties who have tried them speak in very high praise of their excellent virtues. I have used them myself and prescribed them with unparalleled success. This is from Robert. It says, Messrs. Hostetter and Smith, with pleasure, I can say that your bitters are superior to any others. I have used them in my family for a long time and always with beneficial results. Another testimony from John Gratian. Hostetter and Smith, gentlemen, for a long time, I've been afflicted with a disorder of the stomach and was unable to attend to any business. I was advised to use your bitters, which I did, they proving a great benefit to me. I believe, had it not been for them, I should have already been in my grave. I write not only to testify to the virtue of your bitters, but also to have you ship me two more dozen as soon as possible, as I am now keeping a store. How's that for a sales pitch? And here's how they end their advertisement. Such is the tenor of the correspondence received by almost every mail at the manufacturing plant in Pittsburgh. The foregoing letters are given merely as specimens of its general character and as valuable information furnished by those who have been relieved to those who suffer. It is not necessary at this late day to publish elaborate testimonies as a means of pushing this great national specific product. It has obtained a firm hold on the confidence of the public and reached its present position as a standard preparation of the best class through the legitimate medium of experimental demonstrations. No one ventures to impute its medical merits. They are everywhere confessed. One thing that's not mentioned in this ad is that Hostetter bitters at one point contained up to 43% of alcohol and a bunch of sugar. And here was something that was written up some time ago showing how much alcohol was in Hostetter's bitters. It says, the daily dose recommended is six tablespoons or three ounces. The daily dose of Hostetter's bitters contains as much alcohol as does the beer in three bottles or the straight whiskey in a full shot glass. There you go. No wonder it cured everything. You forget about everything after you have a full daily dose of Hostetter's bitters. But that's what the type of medicine you find in the mad wild west. Time to mount up on your horses, check your ammo, because we're getting ready to ride into Texas back in 1831 when it was part of the mad wild west. This comes out of the excerpt of a book called The Rise of Texas. It was written in the late 1800s. Title of this section is called Fight of the Bowies with the Indians on the San Saba in 1831. Here we go. In 1831, Rines P. Bowie furnished a Philadelphia paper with the following narrative. It has been published in several books since. Colonel James Bowie made a report to the Mexican governor at San Antonio, not so full, but in accord with this report. It gives an account of of one of the most extraordinary events in the pioneer history of America. On November 2nd, 1831, we left the town of San Antonio for the silver mines on the San Saba River. The party consisting of the following persons, 
Reigns, P. Bowie, James Bowie, David Buchanan, Robert Armstrong, Jesse Wallace, Matthew Doyle, Cephas Ham, James Correll, Thomas McCaslin, Gonzalez, and Charles, who were servant boys. Nothing particular occurred until the 19th, on which day, about 10 a.m., we were overhauled by two Comanche Indians and a Mexican captive who had struck our trail and followed it. They stated that they belonged to another party, a chief of the Comanche tribe, 16 in number, and were on their way to San Antonio with a drove of horses which they had taken from the Wacos and were about returning to their own citizens of San Antonio. After smoking and talking with them for about an hour and making them a few presents of tobacco, powder, shot, etc., they returned to the party who were waiting at Lilano River. We continued our journey until night closed upon us when we encamped. The next morning, the above-named Mexican captive returned to our camp. His horse was much fatigued, and after eating and smoking, stated that he had been sent by his chief to inform us we were followed by 124 Waco Indians and 40 Cados had joined them, who were determined to have our scalps at all risks. Asoni had held a talk with them all the previous afternoon and endeavored to dissuade them from their purpose, but they still persisted and left him enraged and pursued our trail. As a voucher for the truth of the above, the Mexican produced his chief's silver medal, which is common among natives in such cases. He further stated that his chief requested him to say that he had but 16 men, badly armed and without ammunition, but if we would return and join him, they could have success against the enemy. But knowing that the enemy lay between us and him, we deemed it more prudent to pursue our journey and endeavor to reach the old fort on the San Saba River before night, distance 30 miles the Mexican then returned to his party, and we proceeded on. Throughout the day, we encountered bad roads, being covered with rocks and the horse's feet being worn out. We were disappointed in not reaching the fort. In the evening, we had some little difficulty in picking out advantageous spot where to encamp for the night. We, however, made choice of the best that offered, which was a cluster of live oak trees, some 30 or 40 in number, about the size of a man's body. To the north of them, a thicket live oak brushes and about 10 feet high, 40 yards in length and 20 in breadth to the west, at the distance of 35 or 40 yards, ran a stream of water. The surrounding country was an open prairie, interspersed with few trees, rocks, and broken land. The trail which we came on lay to the east of our encampment. After taking the precautions to prepare our spot for defense by cutting a road inside the thicket of brushes 10 feet from the outer edge all around and clearing the prickly pears from among the bushes, we hobbled our horses and placed sentinels for the night. We were now distant six miles from the old fort above mentioned, which was built by the Spaniards in 1752 for the purpose of protecting them while working the silver mines, which are a mile distant. A few years after, it was attacked by the Comanche Indians and every soul put to death. Since that time, it has never been occupied. 
Within the fort is a church, which had we reached night before, it was our intention to have occupied to defend ourselves against Indians. The fort surrounds about one acre of land under a 12-foot stone wall. Nothing occurred during the night, and we lost no time in the morning in making preparations for continuing our journey to the fort. And when in the act of starting we discovered the Indians on our trail to the east about 200 yards distance and a footman about 50 yards ahead of the main body with his face to the ground tracking, the cry of Indians was given and all hands to arms. We dismounted and both saddle and pack horses were made fast to the trees. As soon as they found we had discovered them, they gave the war whoop, halted, and commenced stripping preparatory to action. A number of mounted Indians were recottering the ground. Among them were discovered a few Cotto Indians who had always previously been friendly to Americans. Their number being so far greater than ours, 164 to 11, it was agreed that Rains P. Bowie should be sent out to talk with them and endeavor to compromise with them rather than attempt a fight. He accordingly started with David Buchanan in company and walked up to within about 40 yards of where they had halted and requested them in their own tongue to send forward their chief as he wanted to talk with him. Their answer was, howdy do, in English, and discharge of 12 shots at us, one of which broke Buchanan's leg. Bowie returned their salutation with contents of a double-barreled shotgun and a pistol. He then took Buchanan on his shoulder and started back to the encampment. They then opened a heavy fire upon us, which wounded Buchanan in two more places slightly and pierced Bowie's hunting shirt in several places without doing him any injury. When they found their shot had failed to bring Bowie down, eight Indians on foot took after him with their tomahawks, and when close upon him were discovered by his party who rushed out with their rifles and brought down four of them, the other four retreating back to the main body. We then returned to our positions, and all was still for about five minutes. We then discovered a hill to the northeast at the distance of 60 yards, red with Indians who opened a heavy fire upon us with loud yells, their chief on horseback, urging them in a loud and audible voice to charge, walking his horse perfectly composed. When we first discovered him, our guns were all empty with the exception of Mr. Ham's. James Bowie cried out, Who's loaded? Mr. Ham observed, I am. He was then told to shoot that Indian on horseback. He did so and broke the leg and killed his horse. We now discovered him hopping around his horse on one leg with his shield on his arm to keep off the balls. But this time, four of our party being reloaded fired at the same instant and all the balls took effect through the shield. He fell and was immediately surrounded by six or eight of his tribe who picked him up and bore him off. Several of these were shot by our own party. The whole party then retreated back on the hill out of sight with the exception of a few Indians who were running about from tree to tree out of gunshot. They now covered the hill a second time, bringing up their own bowmen, who had not been in the action before, and commenced a heavy fire with balls and arrows, which we retreated by a well-directed aim with our rifles. At this instant, another chief appeared on horseback near the spot where the last one fell. The same question of who was loaded was asked. The answer was nobody. 
when little Charles, the servant, came running up with Buchanan's rifle, which had not been discharged since he was wounded, and handed it to James Bowie, who instantly fired and brought him down from his horse. He was surrounded by six or eight of his tribe, as was the last, and bore off under our fire. During the time we were engaged in defending ourselves from the Indians on the hill, some 15 or 20 of the Cotto tribe had succeeded in getting under the bank of the creek in our rear at about 40 yards distance and opened a heavy fire upon us, which wounded Matthew Doyle, the ball entering his left breast and passing out his back. As soon as he cried out he was wounded, Thomas McCaslin hastened to the spot where he fell and observed, where's the Indian that shot Doyle? He was told by a more experienced hand not to venture there, as from the report of their guns they must be riflemen. At that instant they discovered an Indian, and while in the act of raising his piece, McCaslin was shot through the center of the body and expired. Robert Armstrong exclaimed, Damn the Indians that shot McCaslin. Where is he? He was told not to venture there, as they must be riflemen. He was fired at, and part of the stock of his gun cut off, and the ball lodged against the barrel. During this time, our enemies had formed a complete circle around us, occupying the points of rocks, scattering trees, and bushes. Finding our situation too much exposed among the trees, we were obliged to leave it and take to the thickets. The first thing necessary was to dislodge the riflemen from under the bank of the creek, who were within point-blank shot. This was soon succeeded in by shooting most of them through the head, as we had the advantage of seeing them when they could not see us. The road we had cut around the thicket the night previous gave us now an advantageous situation over that of our enemies, and we had a fair view of them in the prairie, while we were completely hid. We baffled their shots by moving six or eight feet the moment we had fired, as their only mark was the smoke of our guns. They would put twenty balls within the size of a pocket handkerchief, where they had seen the smoke. In this manner, we fought them two hours and had one man wounded, James Corell, who was shot through the arm and the ball lodged in the side, first cutting away a bush which prevented it from penetrating deeper. They now discovered that we were not to be dislodged from the thicket and the uncertainty of killing us at a random shot, they suffering very much from the fire of rifles, which brought a half dozen of them down at every round. They now determined to resort to strategy by putting fire to the dry grass in the prairies for the double purpose of routing us from our position and under cover of the smoke to carry away their dead and wounded which lay near us. The wind was now blowing from the west. They placed fire in that quarter. There it burnt down all the grass to the creek and bore off to the right and leaving around our position a space about five acres that was untouched by fire. Under cover of the smoke, they succeeded in carrying off a portion of their dead and wounded. In the meantime, our party were engaged in scraping away the dry grass and leaves from our wounded men and baggage to prevent the fire from passing over it, and likewise in pulling up rocks and bushes to answer the purpose of a breastwork. They now discovered they had failed routing us by the fire as they had anticipated. They then reoccupied the points of the rocks and trees in the prairie and commenced another attack. The firing continued for some time when the wind suddenly shifted to the north and blew very hard. 
We now discovered our dangerous situation. Should the Indians succeed in putting fire to the small spot which we occupied and kept a strict watch all around? The two servant boys were employed in scraping away dry grass and leaves from around the baggage and pulling up rocks and placing them around the wounded men. The remainder of the party were warmly engaged with the enemy. The point from which the wind now blew being favorable to fire our position, one of the Indians succeeded in crawling down the creek and putting fire to the grass, and that had not yet been burnt. But before he could retreat back to his party was killed by Robert Armstrong. At this time, we saw no hopes of escape as the fire was coming down rapidly before the wind flaming 10 feet high and directly for the spot we were occupying. What was to be done? We must either be burnt up alive or driven into the prairie among the savages. This encouraged the Indians, and to make it more awful, their shouts and yells rent the air. They, at the same time, fire upon us about 20 shots a minute. As soon as the smoke hit us from their view, we collected together and held a consultation as to what would be the best for us to do. Our first impression was that they might charge us under cover of smoke as we could make but one effectual fire. The sparks were flying about so thickly that no man could open his powder horn without running the risk of being blown up. However, we finally came to a determination had they charged us to give them one fire, place our backs together and draw our knives and fight them as long as any of us one was left alive. The next question was, should they not charge us and we retain our position, we must be burned up. It was then decided that each man should take care of himself as best he could until the fire arrived at the ring around our baggage and wounded men, and there it should be smothered with buffalo robes, bear skins, deer skins, and blankets, which after a great deal of exertion we succeeded in doing. Our thicket being so much burned and scorched that it afforded us little or no shelter, we all got into the ring that was around our wounded men and baggage and commenced building our breastwork higher with the loose rocks from the inside and dirt dug up with our knives and sticks. During this last fire, the Indians had succeeded in removing all their killed and wounded which lay near us. It was now sundown, and we had been warmly engaged with the Indians since sunrise, a period of 13 hours. And they, seeing us still alive and ready to fight, drew off at a distance of 300 yards and encamped for the night with their dead and wounded. Our party now commenced to work, raising our fortification higher and succeeded in getting it breast high by 10 p.m. We now filled all our vessels and skins with water, expecting another attack next morning. We could distinctly hear the Indians nearly all night crying over their dead, which is their custom. And at daylight, they shot the wounded chief, it being also a custom to shoot any of their tribe that are mortally wounded. They, after that, set out with their dead and wounded to a mountain about a mile distance where they deposited their dead in a cave on the side of it. At eight in the morning, two of the party went out from the fortification to the encampment where the Indians had lain the night previous and counted 48 bloody spots on the grass where the Indians had been lying. As near as we could judge, their loss must have been 40 killed and 30 wounded. We afterwards learned from the Comanche Indians that their loss was 82 killed and wounded. 
finding ourselves much cut up, having one man killed and three wounded, five horses killed and three wounded, we commenced strengthening our little fort and continued our labors until 1 p.m. when the arrival of 13 Indians drew us into the fort again. As soon as they discovered we were still there and ready for action and well fortified, they put off. We, after that, remained in our fort eight days, treating our wounded men and horses at the expiration of which time, being all in pretty good order, we set out on our return to San Antonio. We left our fort at dark and traveled all night, and until the afternoon of the next day, we picked out an advantageous spot and fortified ourselves, expecting the Indians would, when reunited, followed our trail. But however, we saw no more of them. David Buchanan's wounded leg here mortified, and having no surgical instruments or medicine of any kind, not even a dose of salts, we boiled some live oak bark very strong and thickened it with pounded charcoal and Indian meal and tied it around his leg, over which we sewed buffalo skin and traveled along five days without looking at it. When it was opened, it was in a fair way for healing, which it finally did and the mortified parts all dropped off, and his leg now is as well as it was ever. Every one of the party had his skin cut in several places and numerous shot holes through his clothes. On the twelfth day, we arrived in good order with our wounded men and horses at San Antonio. Woo! Hope you all don't have bullet holes in your clothes after wandering through that story. You know it's a great story when you make it out alive in the mad wild west. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening. These are the true stories that made it wild.